You are listening to the You Are a Lawyer podcast. I am the podcast host, Kyla Denanio, a 2015 law school graduate. This episode is brought to you by the Law Office of Vernon P. Thomas. The Law Office of Vernon P. Thomas can assist you with entertainment, criminal, and civil law issues. To schedule an appointment, contact the Law Office of Vernon P. Thomas at 504-944-9703. And thank you for sponsoring Season 3 of the You Are a Lawyer podcast. In episode 48, I am speaking with a solo practitioner and lawyer. This guest worked as a prosecutor for 15 years before switching to the other side and opening a criminal defense law firm. Based in Greensboro, North Carolina, today's guest is Kristen Haukiotis. Welcome to the podcast, Kristen. <laughs> thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Oh, thank you for joining. Would you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I am a native of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And currently, I am a criminal defense attorney in Greensboro, North Carolina, which is in the triad, Central North Carolina. I have been a lawyer. This year will be 18 years. I spent 15 of those years as a prosecutor in both Greensboro and High Point in the Guilford County District Attorney's Office. And in October of 2019, I struck out on my own to open my own law firm. And so I started defending people charged with crimes and I've been doing that for the last two plus years. Okay, so you switched to the other side of the table. Exactly. (laughs) Okay, and do you have a office and a storefront and all of that or did you, have you been doing this remotely and then when everything changed in 2020, you didn't have to change anything at all? Didn't have to change anything at all. It's all been in person pretty much all the time. Okay. Most of the online stuff happens in civil court and there's certain issues that will prevent remote court in criminal court, um, certainly, especially criminal trials because of confrontation clause issues, but our county never really got as technical. And we, even though court was slowed during the height of the pandemic, criminal courts never shut completely. And I do have a physical office. And it's interesting because in our market, you know, of course, I don't know how it is other parts of the country, but in our market, at least, that is pretty standard for criminal defense attorneys. Mm. We tend to be very clustered around nearby, a few blocks from the courthouse. Um, We have physical offices. What I've learned over the last two plus years of being a defense attorney is that people really want to see you in person. Okay. Criminal defense is a very personal experience for the person who's being defended, Um, you know, and certainly for people who are facing serious consequences like prison time, things like that. I found that it's a great comfort when they can come in and meet with you. There's a lot that gets lost virtually, and I'm very thankful that I am in a position to be able to meet with people in person. Yeah, Um, I'm thinking about the people that I know who were especially those that I see online who are talking about Mm -hmm. virtual court and they are all civil or doing corporate transactions. So yeah, that makes sense. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. I hadn't thought about it from that side. So, okay. On your resume, I saw that you are qualified to do first degree murder cases. I went to law school in Louisiana and you had to practice for at least five years to be able to work on a first degree murder charge. Is it Similar in North Carolina, did you have any kind of time requirement that needed to be passed for you to work on first degree murder charges? So it's interesting. That's a great question. And it's very interesting because in North Carolina, there's a very big discrepancy when you're talking about a retained lawyer or a lawyer that's hired by a criminal defendant versus an appointed lawyer. And 
in the way it works here in our state, in North Carolina, if you just passed the bar yesterday, somebody can hire you, pay you money to come and represent them on a first degree murder charge. Okay. However, if you want to get onto the court appointed list in North Carolina for first degree murder cases, it's very, very, very different. And what that involves, and I actually just went through that process um, to get approved for what's called the North Carolina Capital Defense Roster. Mm-hmm. Our Office of the Capital Defender, they maintain a list of qualified attorneys in every district who have applied to be on, in essence, the court appointed list statewide for murder cases. And I only take them here in my home county, but it involved filling out a very long application. It involved having Uh, six references, two felony prosecutors that I've worked with, two defense attorneys who handle murder cases, and two superior court judges. I had to give their contact information, and they were contacted by the Office of the Capital Defender to, you know, find out about me. (laughs) And um, I also had to submit two writing samples, briefs that I'd written in high-level felony cases. And so there was quite a vetting process that is undertaken. And of course, to even fill out an application, you have to meet the minimum criteria of number of jury trials that you've completed, number of years you've been in practice. And even still, it's actually funny because even after 15 years as a prosecutor prosecuting first degree murder cases, I'm only on the associate counsel roster, not lead counsel roster, because I've never defended a capital case before. Okay. You know, I, I have two appointed murder cases now. And so the way it works is somebody off the associate counsel roster will get appointed. So I've been appointed. And then when we get to the point after the case is indicted, where the prosecutor makes a determination about whether the case is going to proceed capitally, if it stays, if it's non-capital, then I stay as the only lawyer. If it is um, deemed capital at that point, then another lawyer is appointed along with me because you have the right to two attorneys in a capital case. Okay. It's a very extensive vetting process Mm -hmm. and it's good because we obviously need good lawyers who can pass a vetting process like that, defending people who are in jeopardy of losing their life. Oh, absolutely. The vetting process probably will scare off people just because how intense it is. You know, someone will withdraw their application. But also, I love that it's that stringent because, I mean, this is someone's life (laughs) that you're you're dealing with. I mean, unlike, yes, it's personal to be dealing with bankruptcy and, you know, child adoption and stuff like that, but capital charges are in a different arena. (laughs) So, and I like that you have to have references from prosecutors and defenders. You mentioned jury trials. And Mm -hmm. part of the five-year requirement in Louisiana is because a jury trial is not something you can just practice for one day and perform, you know, and (laughs) and successfully defend your client. Sure. What is it that you enjoy about that? You've done at least 15 jury trials? So jury trials, I'm at about 35 right now. Oh, Um, I'm sorry. They've all been as a prosecutor. Jury trials were shut down in North Carolina between March of 2020 and about February of 2021. So there was almost a year long period where we didn't have jury trials in our jurisdiction. So I've had one and it was a high level jury trial. And, you know, it's, it's funny to me as somebody who's tried both high level felonies to juries as both a prosecutor and as a defense attorney, it could not be a more profound difference because as a prosecutor, your duty is not to be a zealous advocate for the police or for the state or for the victim. Sure. You speak for a victim, but you don't have the ethical duty of being a zealous 
advocate. You have the ethical duty of doing justice. You have the ethical duty as a defender to zealously represent your client. You're standing next to somebody or sitting next to somebody during that trial where there is a huge potential consequence. And it is a whole different kind of feeling. It's a different pressure. It's, it's a humbling experience. You know, I think as a DA, I think I got numb almost at a point and just, you know, all right, call my next case. All right. What's the next one that's ready to go. And people's lives are hanging in the balance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sometimes it's easy to lose sight of that when the people on your side, n- no one has any real consequence once that trial is over. Yeah. But when you're defending somebody, it's a whole different scenario. You know, the law is the same. The charges might be similar to things you've tried in the past on the other side, but it's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. So I know you said you were kind of surprised by how different it is with the zealous representation Mm -hmm. of defending someone. Were you expecting that challenge or were you just looking forward to no longer being on the district attorney side and coming over to defense? I was excited for the challenge Mm -hmm. and I love that challenge. And I love representing an individual person. I knew I was going to enjoy it and the challenge and the growth opportunity. I wasn't prepared for just how much I was going to love it. Hmm. And I think that the biggest challenge, the change in duty, sure, it's big. I think the biggest challenge though, actually, has been the power shift. Okay. And, you know, you hear people talk about how, you know, prosecutors have all the power and I knew it on an intellectual plane. I knew that, but I don't know that I necessarily realized just entirely how much power I wielded until I didn't have it anymore. Yeah. And when you think, you know, what the right result should be, (laughs) but you are incapable of just making it happen with a stroke of your pen. So it's such a different perspective. And I think that's been the biggest challenge for me. Yeah. In my mind, I'm thinking, sounds like all criminal judges need to see both sides (laughs) because it probably would change the way that they would think about, about stuff. You know, you're really onto something. And it's interesting. Back when I was a prosecutor, I had actually, whenever we have a judicial vacancy, our whole bar, our countywide bar gathers to hear speeches of people who are interested in submitting their names to the governor to be appointed to the vacancy until the next election. And I had put my name in once. And I remember I did get some feedback from people, you know, and they said to me, it's a much better idea to see both sides before you try to become a judge. And and at this point, I just want to be a defense attorney forever. Mm -hmm. But I don't think I really fully understood that until I got over to this side. And I realized that's why they were saying that, because I think that unless you've actually represented people, you just don't know. Yeah. You, you don't know that feeling. You just don't know. I'll, I'll leave it at that until, <laughs> until you've actually represented people who are standing before a court asking for justice, asking for mercy. You, you don't, you just don't really have a frame of reference for that. And I yeah. think it is important. I think it is important to have people on the bench who have, who have represented clients. I think it's very important. Yeah. And so we were speaking about your jury trials, which you were saying you've done about 35. Mm -hmm. However, you've actually been in over 300 trials (laughs) with the district attorney. Well, and that was, those are bench trials. Those are bench trials. I was just about to say, what Mm -hmm. was the distinction? Okay. Sure. So the uh, over about 300 bench trials and about over 30, around 35 jury trials. So bench trials are in our district court. That's where misdemeanors are disposed of. 
And so back the three years at the beginning of my career, when I was a district court prosecutor, sometimes you'd get as many as six or seven trials a day. And they're real fast trials. It's misdemeanors. You know, we have a right to appeal for a trial de novo in superior court in front of a jury. So district court tends to move very quickly. You learn how to think on your feet when you're trying that many cases in a day. Mm-hmm. And it lets you try a lot of cases real quick. And so, you know, I tell a lot of law students, I, I mentor law students. I have interns and and I tell them all, you know, if you're thinking of a job where you want to get that fast paced trial experience, there is honestly nothing better than being a prosecutor in a misdemeanor court because it moves so fast. You learn how to think on your feet and you learn how to try cases and it gives you such a great foundation. Mm -hmm. And you were starting to explain it, but even for more explanation for like law students and, and new lawyers, bench trial literally is you know, you and whoever's on the defense side, the judge sits at the bench. So yeah, at, at, at the defense table, it, it would be myself, my client at the state's table, it would be the prosecutor. They would have the prosecuting witness, sometimes known as the victim there. And the judge is on the bench and the state has to call its witnesses. They go up to the witness stand. It's just, it's not a jury. It's mm-hmm. the judge who's the finder of fact. And the judge will say guilty or not guilty at the end of the trial. And so you're able to move at a much faster pace because you don't have to pick a jury. Mm-hmm. And some TV shows depict bench trials, but a lot of them depict jury trials. <laughs> so I wanted to make sure we really? did explain that distinction. Yeah. Sure, sure. Okay. So I can't think of a, a better way to say it, but you sound like you're having a ball. <laughs> like, what? I a- love my job. Yeah. What was it that appealed to you about criminal law? Back when I was in college, I interned with some local judges when I was home for the summer and got a lot of exposure to court, saw the district attorneys, realized, you know, I think I really want to be a prosecutor. And I went to school out of state. So I returned home and went to state school for law school because I knew I wanted, I was pretty sure I wanted to be a prosecutor and I didn't Mm -hmm. want the debt load of of a private school to weigh me down. And I interned in the DA's office through most of my law school career and had a great mentor who was the elected DA. And, and, you know, he would, he taught me so many great things. One of which was it gets lost on a lot of people, how prosecutors can use their office to help. And, and the ethical duty of a prosecutor is to do justice. Mm-hmm. Um, that's literally their ethical responsibility. And if you think someone is being mistreated, if you think someone is innocent, if you think someone has been charged erroneously, you are the only one as a prosecutor who can literally sign a piece of paper and set someone free. Yeah. You can do so much good as a prosecutor. Mm -hmm. And what I realized too is, you know, I'd thought about over the years, like, I wonder, you know, I saw so many great defense attorneys and I was thinking, yeah, I, I really think that would be an amazing challenge. I would welcome that opportunity. And and I was always a little nervous because I didn't know business very well. Yeah. But yeah, it's definitely worked out and I, I love what I do. And it's, it's never the same day twice. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned undergrad. You actually went to Rutgers for undergrad. I did. Yeah. And Big Ten school. Yay. I <laughs> went to Ohio <laughs> State. Okay. So what did you study in undergrad? I was a political science major. Okay. And like two classes away from being a philosophy double major. Okay. Um, ended up minoring in philosophy. So yeah, I had to go to law school or else what was I going to do with that, right? <laughs> You know, um, but I had a great time. I studied political science as well, but I had a minor in professional writing. And that honestly has served me more than the political science degree. But yeah, I did political science as well. And and what else would you do with that? You know, maybe right. become a lobbyist, but most people go to law <laughs> yeah. school and then become lobbyists. So 
Yeah. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> so when you were in law school, you won an opening statement writing competition, and you also were the editor of a law journal. Were you an editor on the journal and were, did you participate in these writing competitions to prepare you for all the writing you would do as a prosecutor? So the opening statement competition from law school, that was actually, um, it was not a written competition. It was actually an oral competition. So it was actually presentation. I was a finalist in that. And I was, yeah, I was the articles editor on my law review. I was sort of like a law review nerd, not going (laughs) to lie. I wrote onto the law review after on my first year. And that was, that was just sort of like a personal goal that I had. And then the other thing I did during law school is I did have a third year practice certificate. So I would actually go to the DA's office pretty much every day after classes and try cases in district court, which were misdemeanor cases. And so that was so much fun. I had a really good time doing that. And it it afforded me the chance to learn so much and kind of work the kinks out and just learn how district court worked so well. And then when I got hired in my first DA job right after law school, I was able to hit the ground running in such Mm -hmm. a great way. That internship served me so well. Yeah. Internships are great for giving practical experience when you're a student. So definitely. I went to North Carolina Central and we had an incredibly strong clinical program and and we still do. And it's just expanded and grown in amazing ways to the criminal law litigation clinic. Literally, we did a deep dive on all of the criminal statutes. And so I had that knowledge too, both in the classroom as well as at the DA's office. And it was just such an incredible foundation. Yeah. I love hearing you talk about it all because you're like, (laughs) you're really enjoying it. Like, 18 years later, and I'm still a law school nerd. Yeah, (laughs) it's good to hear. So you're licensed in North Carolina. Yes. You're also licensed in district court, uh, the middle district in North Carolina and the Supreme Court. Yes. How does that feel? That was like a pandemic project. It had been on my list of things to do. And I just wanted to kind of check that off the list. So I did it on motion. So I didn't go to DC. Um, But I wish I had done it earlier so that number one, I could have gone to Washington and number two, it would have been when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still alive Mm -hmm. because I would have loved to have gone physically to the court and seen her. Yeah. I still think it's very cool. I was like, Ooh, I'm like (laughs) looking at your resume and highlighting stuff. I was like, wow, that's great. And when the pandemic is over, like that is on my list of things to do when I go back up to DC, because once you're a member of the Supreme Court bar, you're allowed to come in, use the law library. You're, there's wow. a special reserved seating area of the courtroom that you can sit in. It's first come first serve when they're having arguments, but I, I want to do that because I just think it's really cool. Oh yeah. That would be incredible. Was the process for the Supreme Court bar as rigorous as being on the Capitol roster in North Carolina? <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Um, <laughs> What I had to do, I had to get like a certificate of good standing from my state Supreme Court. That was easy. I just requested it online, sent them $5. And then I just (laughs) had to fill out, like literally the application was, was maybe two pages, just your personal information. And then you have to get two people who are members of the Supreme Court bar to sign off on your application, just saying that you're not, you know, a psycho or something. And, um, (laughs) and and then you just send it, you send it in. And and now there it's great because they're doing everything via email. So yeah, it was definitely not as rigorous as getting onto the Capitol roster. (laughs) Okay. And $5, huh? All right. Well, and then their application fee was, I think it was 200. The $5 okay. was to get the, the certificate from my state Supreme Court. Oh, I get you, I I mean, I'm in good standing with the North Carolina State Bar. 
That is funny. All right. Well, <laughs> yeah, I had to send, I had to send the Supreme court a check. That was definitely had to send them a check. Okay. They got to send you that. They've got to send you that pretty certificate. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> oh man, I would love to see their law library. Oh my goodness. Yes. That's definitely on the list of things to do. Yeah. So to switch subjects a little bit and just talk about some of your community service, you've actually been involved with 14 different organizations. Why is it so important to you to give back? So it's really just how I was raised. My parents were both educators. My dad is also a retired politician. So public service was sort of just a way of life and giving back. And I remember volunteering with my mom as when she was doing her volunteer work when I was a kid. And that led me really to the Junior League of Greensboro. And I was so lucky to serve as president a couple of years ago. And that is really the training I received there in the junior league as as wonderful it was. And as much as I gave back to the community, I got even more back in the training and experience of running, literally running a a nonprofit corporation. Mm -hmm. Um, And that gave me the courage to realize, Hey, I can run a law office. I can do this. And my dog and I like to volunteer too. We're a, we're a registered (laughs) therapy dog team together. Okay. And, um, it's wonderful. He's a herding dog. He's a corgi. So he likes having a job to do. Mm -hmm. And we've been, it's been a little, uh, slow during the pandemic because we used to visit nursing homes like once a month and, you know, nursing homes have really limited access for visitors because of COVID. Um, but we've had a couple of, of volunteer opportunities in about the last six months or so. And so hopefully as things continue to reopen and things get a little better, um, we'll have more because we've definitely missed that. But it's just important just being raised that way and everything that you have and that you've been given and the privilege that you're lucky enough to have, you need to use it and Mm -hmm. give back as much as you can uh, to help other people. It was just really a way of life for me. So you are a published author. You wrote for the book Networked, um, Mm -hmm. which if anyone's looking for it, it's hashtag networked. Um, And you actually were um, sorry, <laughs> you participated with Networked. And I actually used to work with Angie Vishenyanin, who was really? another author. Yeah. Um, so how does that feel being a published author? It was incredible. And I'll tell you the way this came about was so wild. In February of 2020, I had started following a lawyer on Instagram, Olivia Vizacro, the less stressed lawyer. And she, we started chatting and she got me into this networked um, or this LinkedIn networking um, pod, um, this message group. And it was about 50 women lawyers from all over the country, all different areas of practice, all different backgrounds, such a powerhouse group. And in March of 2020, when everything hit the fan with the shutdown, we were chatting in the group and there was an idea, hey, let's write a book about how we're having to pivot. And I hate, I've come to kind of hate the word pivot, but at the time (laughs) we were like, I mean, it was a huge pivot we all had to do. Yeah. And we decided to write this anthology. Our friend Sherry Bellitz had the idea and everybody would contribute a chapter. And so there were 20 of us who wanted to take this on. So there are 20 of us who are published authors now, Amazon bestsellers, and each of us did a chapter and it was such, and we got it published. It's been selling on Amazon and it was actually one of the most amazing things that I've participated in. Um, you know, we formed an LLC and all of the profits go to charity. Every year we vote on the charity. Last year it was the National Women's Law Center. This oh, year wow. it's a domestic violence charity in Maine. 
Um, and so, but to get, you know, 20 powerful female lawyers to agree on all of this. I mean, it's, it's amazing how it all came together and mm -hmm. everybody was like, we just want to do this. And it was just being part of that. Um, and being part of that network has been such an incredible experience for me. Yeah. And so were each of the chapters of different length or were you guys given, you know, a 5,000 word limit or what? There was a word limit. I can't remember off the top of my head yeah. what it was, but everybody, we were, yeah, we were given a word limit. And so there, okay. the chapters vary in length a little bit, yeah. um, but it was really, it was really cool to participate in that. And I think it's helped me be more open and kind of, you know, I think sometimes it's hard to like, wow, I'm going to share myself a bit of myself with the world here. Mm -hmm. and, and I sort of had afterwards, it was like, Ooh, this is kind of a little bit. And my friend Olivia called it a little bit of a vulnerability hangover, if you will. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's great because it was such a good growth opportunity. And, and I'm just, again, it's one of the best things I've ever participated in. And I'm really thankful that the pandemic threw that opportunity our way. Yeah. Because that, that would not have come about if things had, had stayed the same. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, for one, you guys wouldn't have had the topic and then it probably just yep. would have been really difficult. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so speaking of putting yourself out there in your story, you've been a podcast guest a number of times. I mean, more than 15 times. Have you ever thought about hosting a podcast? I have thought about it. Mm -hmm. um, my hat is off to you, to those of you who host one, because it is <laughs> such an incredible amount of work. Yeah. I mean, it's like a second, it's like another job. It's like oh, another it full-time job. Yeah. Another full-time job. Yeah. Um, Especially if you have guests, hundred percent. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, yeah, I guess it's one thing if you're just sitting there talking mm -hmm. yourself. Um, but yeah, if you're having to coordinate with guests and research guests and engage in that dialogue, that's a lot. Um, yeah. So seriously, my hat is off to you. I think it's mm -hmm. wonderful. I have yeah. definitely thought about it. Like if I get to a point where things calm down, but my schedule is such that I'm literally in court every day. And so that would be quite a lot. Okay. <laughs> so Christian, is there anything that you'd like to say, any last words to the audience about, you know, their path through law school, what they can do with their law degree, how cool it is to be on the criminal law side, anything? Sure. I think there's a couple of, of, of points that I'd love to leave people with mm -hmm. and and what I've learned, and especially what this transition from one side of the aisle to the other has taught me, is that it's not the jobs we do, but it's the relationships we build that matter. Yeah. Because I am on, I'm, I'm doing the exact same work, I'm just on the other side. But all the relationships that I nurtured with everybody for the first 15 years of my practice, whether they were coworkers who are now opposing counsel, I'm in front of the same judges I was in front of as a prosecutor. I work with the same clerks. I work with the same bailiffs, law enforcement, you know, all of those people. And, and the kind of person that I pride myself on the respect that I show to others and the relationships I build. And that has served me so well in this transition. And it's made it such a seamless transition and such an easy one um, because those relationships were just so strong. Yeah. And it ties into the second point that, regardless of what you do or what practice area you go into, leading with kindness is the way to go. And it's, it's always going to be the best option. I try to avoid the words always and never, but here I will use the word always. And I think <laughs> that when, when you're smart and you have a good command of the law that you practice, I think leading with kindness is an easy thing to do. Well, thank you so much, Christian. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This was excellent. I really appreciate it. Um, and I, I'm sure people will learn from it. So wonderful. That's the goal. Right. That's the goal. 
<laughs> well, you have a great evening. Thanks. Have a good weekend, Kyla. Uh-huh. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to You Are a Lawyer. While you are here, subscribe to the show, leave a rating, and tell a friend about this episode. New episodes are released every other Thursday. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Bye.